Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is a super special episode. Today, I am going to be sharing with you a chat that I had with author Flora Frazier. So she is a writer of historical biographies, which have included, um, she wrote The Washingtons, George and Martha. She also wrote Beloved Emma, The Life of Emma, Lady Hamilton. The Unruly Queen, The Life of Queen Caroline, which is about Caroline of Brunswick, who we've talked about on this podcast, as well as Princesses, The Six Daughters of George III. And her most recent book, which is just coming out in North America, or by the time you hear this, it is out, so you should buy it. It's called Flora MacDonald, Pretty Young Rebel, Her Life and Story by Flora Fraser. And so I just want to orient us all into where this story takes place in history in terms of this podcast and other people we've talked about. So you remember Charles II, who we talked about, who was, he had that whole thing where he was on the run, he was hiding up a tree, things like that. So he took over as king. He was one of the Stuart kings. And then he didn't have any legitimate children. So his brother James took over as king, as James II. James decided to become Catholic. And a lot of people weren't into that. And so he was deposed, and the people who took over from James II was James's older daughter, Mary, and her husband, William. They ruled as William and Mary. And then after they died without any children, then James's other daughter, Anne, took over. And that's Queen Anne, who we've talked about on the podcast, Queen Anne from The Favorite. She did not have any surviving children. So then after her, it went over to the Hanovers. That's George I, who was a German man who spoke German and he took over. So these were, if you're somebody in England who wants to have like a man as your king, like you're not excited about William and Mary. You're not excited about Anne. Then you're not excited about this German guy coming over. So after James II, Charles II's brother, who was deposed, he was not killed. He was just sent into exile with his um, young, younger second wife, Mary of Modena, who was the daughter of one of the Mazarinettes. They had children. And so the children of James II, like he had a son and the son had a son. And so that lineage, those stewards, there were kind of fans of them who wanted them, who considered them to be actually the real king. And they wanted them to go back over to England and take over from Anne, to take over from George. And that's where the Jacobite thing whole comes from. That's people who supported them are called the Jacobites. We explain why they're called that in this podcast anyway. So that leads to a man called Charles Edward Stewart, aka Bonnie Prince Charlie. And that's a major factor in the story that we're going to talk about here today. I mean, the main thing we're talking about is Flora MacDonald. But we know about her because of what happened between her and Charles Edward Stewart, a.k.a. Bonnie Prince Charlie. But she did a whole lot more than that. I was so delighted to talk to Flora about... Flora Fraser is the author. She wrote the book about Flora MacDonald. And she was actually herself named after Flora MacDonald. But we talk about that as well in this episode. So I really hope that you're going to enjoy this chat between myself and author 
Flora Fraser. So welcome, Flora Fraser. Thank you, Anne. Great to be with you. I'm really delighted to be talking to you about this book and about the the character of Flora McDonald, the main the main heroine of the story. Could you start by situating us in a place and a time, just so we can understand the importance of her story, what was going on in the world around her? Sure. So we're in the Highlands of Scotland, and in fact, in the islands off to, off the west coast. And a prince known to today in the UK where I live as Bonnie Prince Charlie, but he's a a Stuart prince who's come from from Europe to try and take back the English crown for the Stuarts, because there are now in 1745, which is the the, the time, there there's now uh, George the second, the the grandfather of. George III, the Hanoverian monarch, we all know, who lost the Americas. And he's on the throne. And um, so Bonnie Prince Charlie comes, and no one thinks that his venture will succeed, but he rallies the Highland clans, names we all know today, McDonald's, Campbell's, McLeod's. Um, many of these, of course, uh, today uh, have since emigrated to Canada and the States. Um, and they sweep down victorious against the Hanoverian army or the Redcoats until they get near London, only 100 miles from London. And the king, of course, George II, is everyone's freaking out in London. But the king's son, the Duke of Cumberland, is the general in charge who pushes Charles Edward Stuart or, or Bonnie Prince Charlie back up to uh, the Highlands and on a moor outside Inverness called Culloden Moor, the Redcoats, the Hanoverians, uh, utterly defeat this Highland army and Charles Edward or Bonnie Prince Charlie flees from the battlefield, which is on the east coast in the Highlands, to the west coast. And he's trying to get from there back to France and Italy. He, he grew up in Rome because the Stuarts were exiled in the previous century. And he is thinking that he's going to manage it. And then, and he's on an island um, way out in the in the Atlantic, really, uh, the Western Isles or the, the Outer Hebrides, and and then the redcoats arrive on the island, and in desperation, he comes to the the shepherd's hut at midnight, where this young gentlewoman Flora Macdonald is minding her brother's cattle, and he says please help me. And the, a plot is concocted. And Bonnie Prince Charlie, who's six foot four and uh, six foot and incredibly well known with this long oval face, is dressed up as Flora's Irish maid, Betty Burke. And Flora and, and Betty Burke, the prince in disguise, erode 
over the sea to sky. And it's from that midnight voyage following on their midnight meeting that there comes that haunting song, uh, uh, speed, bonny boat, like a bird on the wing, over the sea to sky. Because from sky, an island nearer the, the west coast, um, Bonnie Prince Charlie hopes to get to the mainland where a, ship, a French ship can come in and get him away. And that does eventually happen. But meanwhile, he, as Betty Burke and Flora, spend a, a week in the most sort of uh, desperate situation with redcoats on all around them. The prince eventually gets away, um, but Flora is imprisoned. She's taken on board a, a Royal Navy a vessel and she's uh, taken a prisoner down to go on trial in, in London. So she was just a, a gentlewoman minding her own business on this small island and suddenly she's involved in this situation. Yes, although she is um, minding her own business, everyone in the Highlands has been involved over this past year. Either um, they've gone with the Highland army or down to, to try and take the throne from George II in London, or they've been uh, commandeered as local militia by the government. And the truth is that everyone's talking with a forked tongue, which is very much the Highland way. And so Flora actually knows very well that, that he's on the island. But she wasn't expecting him to come to her. And as she's very reluctant to get involved, because this is a young, handsome and gallant prince who's already had numerous love affairs during his year in Scotland. And she fears for the loss of her reputation because in those days, you, if you were this, a gentlewoman or even in the Western Isles, you needed to be pure or a virgin in order to get married. And she was uh, of marriageable age now in her early 20s. But with her, with the prince, goes at all points a cousin of hers. So there is, in effect, a chaperone. But it's, a, it, it's an extraordinary story of Flora and a chief's wife secretly sewing this maid's costume for this enormous man. And then the prince makes a very, very bad woman because he's not used to having all these skirts. And his father had been called the old pretender, like a pretender to the throne. So the government, the, the Hanoverians call Charles the young pretender. And someone says, well, he, he's picking up his skirts sort of up to his waist to get over a a, a burn, as you know, they call the, the little streams. He says, if you're a pretender, you're the worst <laughs> pretender I've ever seen. This all, I'm not sure what the direct relationship is, but it does remind me of 
his distant ancestor, Charles II, who also went on dis- on the run in disguise and was a very tall man. Absolutely, and hid in the tree and all. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are definite um, parallels. And in fact, later, uh, they, they never meet again after Flora has got Bonnie Prince Charlie safely uh, to the inn at, uh, or the, the, the pub at Portree on the Isle of Skye, where they part and he takes a boat so as to get to the mainland and then she's later discovered and taken south. But he, he never again leads a, an expedition like this to uh, try and restore the Stuarts to the throne. But uh, having dressed up as an Irish maid, it seems he gets quite keen on being in disguise and for the rest of his life, and he he actually is um, he reaches nearly the age of seventy. He is always dressing up as a you know as a priest or sometimes as a woman. So it's obviously given him a taste for yeah. masquerade. For her, it was dead serious. And you know, although some thought because the French hadn't supported Bonnie Prince Charlie's attempt on the throne. So many thought that it was doomed to failure, which indeed it it was. Um, But nevertheless, it was absolutely key to all the Highland chiefs and all those on their lands not to have Bonnie Prince Charlie taken when they were on their lands. It would was this was the great dishonour that everyone feared to have the prince taken. And that didn't occur, and he did get away. So there were kind of two halves to what is in Scotland called the 45, uh, referring to this assault on the throne marching uh, south to London, but also referring to the feat of, of the Jacobite army, as it was called, the Stuart army after his, Charles's father, James, would be Jacobus in Latin, and so it's the Jacobite that means the Stuart army. But the defeat uh, at Culloden Moor took place, in fact, the, the next year in 46, and, and Flora helping Bonnie Prince Charlie to escape took place in the next year also, 1746. But it's referred to always as the 45. I was wondering if you could um, speak about the legend of Flora MacDonald. You were named after her, right? Yes, I, I grew up the other side of Inverness from Culloden Moor, which of course is still a very numinous place um, to visit, as are locations in the Highlands where battles or or even the massacre of Glencoe is Glencoe is a numinous place to visit. So that, and so I, I grew up and knowing her story. I mean, from you know as early as I can remember, and 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 I also knew that uh, Samuel Johnson, Doctor Samuel Johnson, when the, the who wrote the Great Dictionary, he came to visit Flora in Skye when she was 
now a matron of 50 and married with seven children. And he and his great friend and biographer Boswell made this great journey from London. And Dr. Johnson was, you know, old and gouty, but he was, he longed to see Flora and hear this story from her own lips. And they, they stayed with Flora and Johnson slept in the bed in which Bonnie Prince Charlie had slept. It was uh, the only bed, in fact, in which he slept. Uh, he slept one night in a bed in all the time from April, when a Jacobite army was defeated, to the end of September, when he took ship for France. All the rest of the time he was hiding in you know, cow sheds or, or just lying on the moor in his cloak. And, and killed, I mean, the Highland dress, which um, was pretty good. I mean, the Highland dress in those days was a lot more voluminous, mm. if you like, than it is. It wasn't just a kilt, if you know what I mean. It was a full plaid, which you could wrap yourself up in. And so, yes, so I grew up with that. And I knew that Dr. Johnson and Boswell had made this journey and they both wrote about it. And But I never thought about something that Flora said to Dr. Johnson, and she was pleased as punch to know him too. It was two great characters of the 18th century meeting. And she said, you were lucky to find me because I'm off to America. And at the time growing up, reading Boswell and Johnson about the journey to the Western Isles, I, I, I didn't inquire any further. But it was after I'd, um, while I was uh, writing my previous book um, about the marriage of George and Martha Washington, the Washingtons, I was looking for illustrations for the book. And as you can imagine, there are many revolutionary portraits to draw on. And I suddenly found among the portraits of Washington, Martha, Hamilton, all of them, there was a portrait of Flora MacDonald. And I thought, what is Flora MacDonald, who belongs to the 45 and Culloden and Sky and the Boat Song, you know, what's she doing among these? And then I remembered that she had said to Dr. Johnson, I'm off to America. And just before the, the Revolutionary War, quite a lot of uh, Scots from the west coast of Scotland from the, the islands emigrated, uh, large numbers of them, to North Carolina, um, and she went too. And they went because the rents were being racked up and up and up by the chiefs who had, many of them, gone south, and the government had encouraged or in, in some cases more or less blackmailed the chiefs to make sure and have the heirs educated in the South. So where once these chiefs had, their, had been educated at uh, Aberdeen University, Glasgow University, Edinburgh University, all ancient seats of learning, now they were being sort of pushed down to English schools and then from there to English universities like Oxford or Cambridge. And then instead of marrying Scottish heiresses, if they could manage it, 
They were managed English heiresses, if they could manage it. And so, guess what? They stayed in London, and it was rather more expensive. To, so they wrote to their factors or land agents and said, we need some more money. They didn't inquire where it came from, and the factors upped the rents. And so, so they were really being squeezed all over the highlands. And in addition, just before the Revolutionary War, there were there was there were several outbreaks of cattle disease, really serious um, cattle disease, and that was their that's what they uh, sold at, at market on the mainland. That was the like a crop, if you like, and and in addition there was something they referred to as the Black Spring, where everything froze and the cattle died. So you know it was it conspired together to make for quite a wholesale emigration. Not for long, but it meant that when Flora and her family decided to up sticks and they were all wanted to buy, however small, they didn't want to pay rent, you know, with the uncertainty of the rent rises. So when Flora and her husband and family arrive in North Carolina, they quite logically go up, Cape Fear River to this town settled by Scots, which was then called Cross Creek, is now Fayetteville. And they inhabit this uh, sort of Scots community where really everyone's doing very well. And there are uh, several industries in North Carolina. There's a particular, the Longleaf Pine supplies uh, pitch and tar for Royal Navy uh, hulls and rope. So, you know, there's a, they're going into a, a, a colony where there's many going concerns. Uh, but unfortunately, Flora and her husband, Alan, buy in the spring of 1775. And we all know what happened then. And one of their sons, in fact, is a British officer He's in the Marines at Lexington and Concord and later at Bunker Hill. So they're immediately in it and they have to take sides. And whereas in the 45, the Hanoverians regarded Scots as rabble or vermin, these, these soldiers, by now the Scots had proved themselves in, notably in the French and Indian War, where they'd really sort of become some of the greatest fighters in, in the army. And so, so the Patriots in North Carolina wanted these Scots, but the Scots, who'd just come from Scotland and they wanted stability, couldn't believe that these ragamuffin Patriots could possibly defeat the crown who... These Scots, like Flora, they knew the power of the crown, had defeated the Highlanders in, uh, in, in the 45. And moreover, they'd seen their own kith and kin go out and be officers and def in the French and Indian War, officers in British regiments, and defeat the French and the Spanish. So they thought there was, you know, there was no question, but for stability, they joined up for the crown. 
And that all went horribly wrong. Really, really wrong. And the Patriots just took them all out um, in one fell swoop before they could even get weapons down on the, on, on the coast from uh, British ships who were bringing them. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion. And it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you wouldn't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And we're back. And so then you've got Flora. I just, the coincidence of going from one revolution to another. I know, you couldn't make it up and be yeah. on the wrong side both times. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's so extraordinary because she, when she goes down to London and she is tried and for effectively for high treason, um, for hiding the, the prince, for not... Um, but she manages alone of the Jacobites to become a, a popular figure. As I said, most of them are vermin and rabble, whether they're a chief or whether they're a, you know, a, 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 a private. Because she says, um, and she was very canny, which is, I mean, she was canny in that she, she knew what to say to whom. And she said to 
the officer who arrested her and brought her on his ship, he said, what made you do it? Because she had been through, I mean, although it was just a week, it was harem scarum adventures, alarms. And she said, I would have done I would have done the same for you had you been in distress. And he writes that in a letter to a friend, a high society lady in London. And this remark of hers whips around London and everyone, uh, you know, even before she's arrived, when she the ship puts in at Edinburgh to the port there, Leith, people are coming on. She becomes a celebrity. And when she is released without, she's judged to have been um, guilty of treason, but is not punished for it because there is, the government is so, I mean, London is choked with Highlanders who are sort of being tried or they've, you know, they just say, this is enough. They've got to all go home. This is the year after. So this is two years after he, the prince came over. And so she's released. But, you know, she, this quiet gentleman from uh, the Western Isles, she has the leading portrait painters uh, take her likeness because she has these rich patrons. They get together a, a fund for her to take home of £1,500. Well, I mean, minimum, you, you, you used to... About 40 years ago, you used to multiply by 50, but it's now you multiply. But, but you get the feeling, you get the picture. She's going back, a celebrity. There are pamphlets and books and engravings everywhere. And throughout her time, living quietly when she marries and they buy with, um, I mean, they don't buy, but they, they lease, they use some of her money to lease this house from the, the chief. She's using um, her connections in this very 18th century way of patronage. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a system. It's what we would call today networking. But it was highly sophisticated. And she, I think because it was also patronage was how the clan system worked. So she was very, very good at it. And so for each of her five sons, she got a different patron to pay for them to go into the Marines, that was one. Pay for them to go out to the Bengal Army in uh, India, that was another. So, you know, and she knew how to work her, her fame without ever um, compromising on the principles. And she was always a strong Presbyterian. So she was a woman of principle, but that didn't stop her doing the very best she could, and she needed to because her husband... I was just going to say. <laughs> Alan just... It, I mean, you just wanted to have a portrait of Alan hanging there because he was so handsome. And, you know, Boswell says, Mr. Um, MacDonald was the very picture of a Highlander with his bonnet and the cock feather and his plaid and... and he was. But unfortunately, money didn't stick to his hands. And he had schemes. And that was 
And those schemes, you know, for, you know, and in the 18th century, it was an age where people were in experimenting new new uh, forms of agriculture more. And, and, and Alan experimented, but you, <laughs> you really couldn't experiment in uh, on the scale that he had to. You just actually had to rear the cattle and sell them. And so Flora did all the work, and it was she who wrote to the patrons, whereas normally it would have been for the father to write. And all the way through their time in North Carolina, and then Flora in New York, who knew, and Flora in Nova Scotia, because her husband, taken prisoner for two years, a prisoner of war in Pennsylvania, she worked with her son-in-law, who was a man of caliber, and and so they worked to eventually get her husband to join his regiment in Nova Scotia, which when he'd been exchanged, you know, for a, a continental or Americans officer, he was very reluctant to do and wanted to stay in New York, sort of fitting out a volunteer corps. And his his uh, commanding officer in Halifax, Nova Scotia, he said, will you get here? Because if you don't, I'm going to stop your back pay, you know. But he was not, he was not, he meant no harm. That's the thing about Alan. But, but Flora had to constantly pick up the pieces. And then she winds up back in Scotland. Yes, that's right. And by now she's in her 50s. And and she makes her way back to Skye, and by her son-in-law, who was, I mean, 20 years a Marine, a very capable officer, and also an illegitimate son of the MacLeod, the, one of the two local chiefs, I mean, two big chiefs, rather, on Skye. Her son-in-law and daughter are occupying Dunvegan Castle, with their children. So, you know, she actually is okay. And uh, because the MacLeod, the chief, is, is away, so they're kind of housekeeping. So this, I mean, it's one of the most romantic castles in the world, although possibly <laughs> not the warmest. But anyway, she's there. But then Alan comes back. And during the war, in the course of the war, two of her sons have died, not in battle, but in, you know, part of troop movements, if you like. But she, she has great faith in her youngest son, who she left behind at the high school in, in Edinburgh and to be apprenticed to, to the law. In fact, he chose, out to, he chose to go out to Bengal to be in the artillery. Uh, but he was like Flora. He was not only a doer, but extremely capable, intelligent. And he sent her back a pension of £100 a year. And I note that he did not send it to his father. He sent it to his mother. And on top of that, just a couple of years before, in fact, she would die in 1790 at the age of 68, her case came to the attention of the Prince of Wales, who would 
later go on to be the Prince Regent and George IV, and was actually the first of the Hanoverians to be really interested in the Stuarts in Scotland. One thinks today, of course, there's Balmoral, but that was much later. Queen Victoria uh, was, you know, made Balmoral an amazing place and focus for the royal family in Scotland. But he was um, had many faults, but he was the first one to see that you could you could embed the Hanoverian dynasty more better in the United Kingdom if you kind of grab mm-hmm. the Stuart history too. So he sends her a pension of £50 a, a year. And it's rather marvellous to think that, that the great-grandson, as, it, as he was, of George II, who, in effect, Flora had uh, been in opposition to, he's now taking care of her in her old age. <laughs> That's another twist. You just can't believe it. It just seems so improbable. Yeah. I know. No, I mean, it, it's very improbable, but it really is all true. And it's backed up by papers in the Royal Archives, in the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh, in the um, uh, colonial and state records of North Carolina. And, you know, there, it's, it's all documented. This is archival research. It's not myth. There is myth. There's lots of myth about Flora. Like she was imprisoned in the tower. No, she wasn't. You had to be a peer of the realm to be imprisoned in the tower on the whole. Um, and that she and Bonnie Prince Charlie were lovers. No. I mean, she had a... Who wouldn't have a soft spot for this incredibly handsome and, at that time, very brave prince and cheerful despite the failure of his plan? If he showed the best of himself during the time he was... In the United Kingdom, these this strange sort of year and a bit, I think managing by sheer charisma to get the clans to join up when the French weren't there and everyone was saying, oh, no, no, and the charisma. And, and, and then this period when Flora observes him, who's de- bears a... D- any adversity with absolute, you know, sang-froid or, or uh, doesn't pay discomfort, anything like that, uh, any attention, and, and does seem really to regret what he has brought upon the Highlanders, which is, in many cases, death, destitution, or eviction from their homes. Later, going back to Europe and the increasingly dissolute life he led there, you could say it was all disappointment. He was disappointing mm-hmm. and he was disappointed. But when he was, he, he rose to the occasion 
in when he raised the clans, as it was called, and he rose to the occasion and was immensely solicitous all the week they were together of Flora's comfort and um, treated her like, you know, she was a, a, his queen without mm-hmm. them being a romantic couple. So I just wanted to ask, so this book that's just coming out in North America, that's why, why we're chatting today. This is the first full biography of her in quite some time. Yeah, there's not been one for, for some years. Although, you know, all the ones that have been published are all interesting. It's, you know, the, and there's even one which was a wonderfully sort of inventive autobiography of Flora, which was written by her granddaughter, <laughs> who had never met her. It's <laughs> a wonderful story. So what what you have in terms of writing this new book is access, well, the American documents. Like, I think you were looking at sides of her life that maybe hadn't been explored in this way. Yes. And I think that, um, I I mean, certainly other biographers and historians have looked at these papers. The the main, uh, there are some Boswell papers um, in America in the, in at Yale in the Beinecke Library, which are um, fascinating, and although they're not physically in America, the Colonial and State Papers of North Carolina are part of a marvelous um, archival project called Documenting the American South, and so they're actually physically these papers in um, in in the British. National Archives in London. It, it's one of those fantastic American projects. Like when I was writing about the Washingtons, the University of Virginia has the Washington Papers online, and so uh, they were being written these papers and letters from North Carolina and about Flora or about her husband to England, but they 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 are actually here. And then there are other papers here which tell in detail about the lives of these Scots emigrants in North Carolina, because when they come back, uh, you know, when effectively these loyalists are kicked out or, you know, can't remain or don't remain, they submit memorials to government with claims for what they lost in America. So it, you get a whole community and all of them saying that, indeed, Alan, Flora's husband, puts in his, Flora's son-in-law puts in his, and but all their friends, and they're all sort of vouching in London for, I saw, you know, Alexander McLeod's uh, 16 head of cattle, and they were fine and they were strong. <laughs> I was at Neil MacArthur's home and he had, you know, 12 barrels of beer. I, I mean, it's kind of re- because they'd made this, this, this life. I mean, totally Scottish. So fascinating. <laughs> Um, and obviously, no. some remain. No, and I was just going to say that time period. It's 
I mean, the timing is excellent for this book because the TV show Outlander. <laughs> oh, I know. You know, and I uh, I forget the series, but but they go to Flora McDonald's barbecue in North Carolina mm-hmm. in the in the series, and mm-hmm. well, the books are great too. But um, it's completely fascinating um, that now you know there's we're all watching this extraordinary emigration along mm-hmm. with the time travel, and with Jamie and Claire and and. Uh, it it's it's re- having imagined it all these years and while I was writing the book, it's the most wonderful thing to actually watch and the uh, brilliant imagination and accuracy too of um, the author, but then the performances and the I mean uh, I write books I don't you know make. Um, so I'm I'm not a, a, a discerning critic of what you know. Diana Gabaldon just brings it all to life. It's so that period she she you know has. Um, it's rather like while I was writing the Washingtons and Hamilton appeared, and you know of course in America people. Did always know this extraordinary story of the Revolutionary War, but but the Civil War is nearer. Or, uh, and Hamilton just made the Revolutionary War sing in everyone's imaginations. Mm-hmm. And I think that Diana Gabaldon and and all the actors and actresses have again made a, a different part of the Revolutionary War and also the 45 sing in in our imaginations. And I'd like to think that Flora, Pretty Young Rebel, my my life of Flora MacDonald will will contribute to that to that song. Well and I mean just bring it back to something you mentioned at the very beginning. Speaking of the song, so the Sky Boat song. Oh my golly, yeah. I mean, we all sang it in school. It was like we all knew how to play it on the piano. And I mean, it was just like one of those. And then that's so fascinating that it wasn't written at the time. It was actually a lady, English ladies, crossing a, a loch and this, they are, and the, the oarsmen, so, so a loch in Scotland, and the oarsmen are singing a, a Gaelic Air. And she, being a musician, takes down the air and then brings it to this composer and Sir Harry, Harold Bolton. And he, in by this time we're in the sort of late 19th century, puts these these lyrics to it. And and of course there were um there were these. I, I mean Scotland's got the fabulous songs and Gaelic airs and the the dancing, but it's rather, I always, uh, it's being added to, if you know what I mean. It's still being added to, that the events of the 45 or earlier sort of key events that resonate down the centuries in Scotland, 
there are bards, there are dancers, you know, there are still new Scottish dances being invented. It's and it's a it's 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 living history. And I think uh, Outlander is really it's been a fantastic incarnation of living history. And I think what's really interesting and so important about the book that you wrote is you described Flora was immediately sort of a, a famous person, a legend, and people remember her for this boat ride. But what you, that's you've written a whole book, and the boat ride is the first. I don't. It's not even the first third because she did so much stuff afterwards. So we're seeing what's the truth behind exactly the the yeah. truth behind the truth behind the and the woman behind the song. Well, thank you so much for this chat. Well, and it was great. Thank you. So again, that book is called Flora MacDonald, Pretty Young Rebel, Her Life and Story by Flora Fraser. It's available wherever you buy books, including if you use the link in the show notes to buy it through mybookshop.org link, then a little bit of money goes to support vulgar history. But you can buy it wherever you buy books. It's so good. It's so interesting. It's so readable. Flora MacDonald is such an interesting character, and Flora Fraser tells her story incredibly well. You can keep up with this podcast. We're on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod and also on TikTok at Vulgar History. I'm always keen to hear suggestions for people you want me to talk about on the podcast or honestly books you think I should read or authors you want me to talk to. You can reach out to me. There's a form at the website vulgarhistory.com or you can email me at vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. You can also support this podcast on Patreon where if you pledge at least $1 a month, then you get early ad-free access to all episodes. And for $5 per month or more pledge, you get access to bonus episodes, which are about every month. We put out a new episode of Vulgar Peace Theater. That's where I talk about costume dramas with Alison Epstein and Lana Wood Johnson. And also once a month-ish, um, there's episodes of So This Asshole, where I talk about awful men from history. That's all on Patreon. And you can join there at patreon.com slash Writer. Of course, there is Vulgar History merch available at vulgarhistory.store, where you can always use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. I'll be back again next week with another author interview, super special. And so until then, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.